Hey guys, it's Ellie, and this is Classic Mysteries. And today we are on part 9.5 of the Purloined Letter, because I ran out of time last episode, and I didn't want to make a ridiculously long episode, so here we are. Anyway, so last time, the whole shebang is that there's a letter that a certain and very important somebody, who we don't know whom, needs to get back, and the prefect of the police is talking to Dupont and to his friend to try and figure this out. And they, they actually know who stole the letter, so they searched his house so thoroughly, kept on, like, waylaying him and, like, you know, patting him down and trying to find the letter. So the prefect comes over, tells him everything, tells him a whole shemang, and then a few months later, he comes back after Dupont had told him to search the whole house again, and was like, yeah, bro, I didn't find anything. And then Dupont was like, oh, you mean this letter? <laughs> now we're um, listening to Dupont explain himself, how he knew, where the letter was, and yeah, so far, he's just explained that uh, the prefect's searching mechanisms are wonderful, but like, they're only wonderful for a certain set of cases. And this is not one of those cases. It mentioned that the prefect thought that the minister, the person who stole the letter, was a poet. And in the prefect's mind, all poets are stupid. <laughs> but little did he know that that supposed poet is also a mathematician. And according to Dupont, that makes him an exceptionally good reasoner, because he has both a, like, English language poetry background and a math background. Um, but one thing he's talking about is mathematicians. Sometimes they think that, like, stuff that's true in math, like 2 plus 2 is 4, isn't always true in real life. For example, like, um, two halves make a whole. So two different motives for a crime don't always equal the sum of the two motives of the crime if you put them together. They don't necessarily equal a whole, so mathematicians might um, mistakenly think that, but I think what he's trying to say is that since this minister guy is both a poet and a mathematician, he won't make that mistake. <laughs> this is a very long explanation, but I think that's basically what he's talking about right now. So yeah, it's very verbose, it's very, it's kind of dense. I'll try to read it a little bit slower because I tend to speak fast, so yeah. <laughs> With no more waffle, let's get started. I mean to say, continued Dupont, while I merely laughed at his last observations, that if the minister had been no more than a mathematician, the prefect would have been under no necessity of giving me this check. I know him, however, as both mathematician and poet, and my measures were adapted to his capacity with reference to the circumstances by which he was surrounded. I knew him as a courtier too, and as a bold intrigant. Such a man, I considered, could not fail to be aware of the ordinary palatial modes of action. He could not have failed to anticipate, and events have proved that he did not fail to anticipate, the waylings to which he was subjected. He must have foreseen, I reflected, the secret investigations of his premises, his frequent absences from home at night which were nailed by the prefect as certain aids to his success, I regarded only as ruses, to afford opportunity for thorough search to the police, and thus the sooner to impress them with the conviction to which G, in fact, did finally arrive, the conviction that the letter was not upon the premises. I felt also that the whole train of thought which I was at some pains in detailing to you just now, concerning the invariable principle of palatial action in searches for articles concealed, I felt that this whole train of thought would necessarily pass through the mind of the minister. It would imperatively lead him to despise all the ordinary nooks of concealment. 
I could not, I reflected, be so weak as to not see that the most intricate and remote recess of his hotel would be as open as his commonest closet to the eyes, to the probes, to the gimlets, and to the microscopes of the prefect. I saw, in fine, that he would be driven, as a matter of course, to simplicity, if not deliberately induced it as a matter of choice. You will remember, perhaps, how desperately the prefect laughed when I suggested, upon our first interview, that it was just possible this mystery troubled him so much on account of its being so very self-evident. Yes, said I, I remember his merriment very well. I really thought he would have fallen into convulsions. The material world, continued Dupin, abounds with very strict analogies to the immaterial, and thus some color of truth has been given to the rhetorical dogma. That metaphor, or simile, may be made to strengthen an argument, as well as to embellish a description. The principle of the vis inerte, for example, seems to be identical in physics and metaphysics. It is not more true in the former that a large body is with more difficulty set in motion than a smaller one, and that its subsequent momentum is commensurate with this difficulty, than it is in the latter that intellects of the vaster capacity, while more forcible, more constant, and more eventful in their moments than those of inferior grade, are yet the less readily moved and more embarrassed and full of hesitation in the first few steps of their progress. Again, have you ever noticed which of the street signs over the shop doors are the most attractive of attention? I have never given the matter a thought, I said. There is a game of puzzles, he resumed, which is played upon a map. One party playing requires another to find a given word, the name of town, river, state, or empire, any word, in short, upon the motley and perplexed surface of the chart. A novice in the game generally seeks to embarrass his opponents by giving them the most minutely lettered names. But the adept selects such words as stretch in large characters from one end of the chart to the other. These, like the over-largely lettered signs in the placards of the street, escape observation by dint of being excessively obvious. And here the physical oversight is precisely analogous with the moral inapprehension by which the intellect suffers to pass unnoticed those considerations which are too obtrusively and too palpably self-evident. But this is a point, it appears, somewhat above or beneath the understanding of the prefect. <laughs> He's like, well, this point, mm, it's out of the prefect's range. <laughs> Just a little uh, too stupid for that. <laughs> he never once thought it probable or possible that the minister had deposited the letter immediately beneath the nose of the whole world by way of best preventing any portion of that world from perceiving it. So he's saying that the minister somehow put the letter in plain sight. And, he, and that he also knew that his house was being searched and that he would be waylaid all along. This is wild. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. Like, after we learned that the minister was actually smarter than we thought he was, then, I mean, I was pretty sure that he would know. Like, who's out every single night? And how, why would it have been so convenient for the prefect to search his entire house without him noticing? Like, of course he noticed. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, anyway. But the more I reflected upon the daring, dashing, and discriminating ingenuity of D, upon the fact that the document must always have been at hand, if he intended to use it to good purpose, and upon the decisive evidence obtained by the prefect, that it was not hidden within the limits of that dignitary's ordinary search. The more satisfied I became that, to conceal this letter, 
the minister had resorted to the comprehensive and sagacious expedient of not attempting to conceal it at all. Wow. Reverse psychology. <laughs> Full of these ideas, I prepared myself with a pair of green spectacles, and called one fine morning, quite by accident, at the ministerial hotel. I found Dee at home, yawning, lounging, and dawdling as usual, and pretending to be in the last extremity of ennui. He is, perhaps, the most really energetic human being now alive. But that is only when nobody sees him. To be even with him, I complained of my weak eyes and lamented the necessity of the spectacles, under the cover of which I cautiously and thoroughly surveyed the whole apartment, while seemingly intent only upon the conversation of my host. <laughs> so you know how um, sometimes people just wear sunglasses outside just so that they can people watch? I've done that before, I know. Because wearing sunglasses where people can't see your eyes, it's so much more fun to just look at people and not be worried about people noticing. So that's literally what Dupont is doing right now. <laughs> like he's wearing sunglasses or something similar and just and just pretending like he's involved in the conversation, but really he's like, his eyes are wandering. <laughs> I paid a special attention to a large writing table near which he sat, and upon which lay confusedly some miscellaneous letters and other papers with one or two musical instruments and a few books. Here, however, after a long and very deliberate scrutiny, I saw nothing to excite particular suspicion. At length, my eyes, in going the circuit of the room, fell upon a trumpery filigree card rack of pasteboard that hung dangling by a dirty blue ribbon from a blue brass knob just beneath the middle of the mantelpiece. In this rack, which had three or four compartments, were five or six visiting cards and a solitary letter. This last was much soiled and crumpled. It was torn nearly in two across the middle, as if a design, in the first instance, to tear it entirely up as worthless, had been altered or stayed in the second. It had a large black seal bearing the D cipher very conspicuously, and was addressed in a diminutive female hand to D, the minister himself. It was thrust carelessly, and even as it seemed contemptuously, into one of the uppermost divisions of the rack. No sooner had I glanced at this letter than I concluded it to be that of which I was in search. To be sure it was, to all appearance, radically different from the one of which the prefect had read to us so minute a description. Here the seal was large and black, with the D cipher, and there it was small and red, with the ducal arms of the S family. Here the address to the minister, diminutive and feminine. There the superscription to a certain royal personage was markedly bold and decided. The size alone formed a point of correspondence, but then the radicalness of these differences, which was excessive, the dirt, the soiled and torn condition of the paper, so inconsistent with the true methodical habits of D, and so suggestive of a design to delude the beholder into an idea of the worthlessness of the document. These things, together with the hyper-obtrusive situation of this document, full in the view of every visitor, and thus exactly in accordance with the conclusions to which I had previously arrived, these things, I say, were strongly corroborative of suspicion in one who came with the intention to suspect. I protracted my visit as long as possible, and, while I maintained a most animated discussion with the minister upon a topic which I knew well had never failed to interest and excite him, I kept my attention really riveted upon the letter. In this examination, I committed to memory its external appearance and arrangement in the rack, and also fell at length upon a discovery which set at rest whatever trivial doubt I might have entertained. In scrutinizing the edges of the paper, I observed them to be more chafed than seemed necessary. 
They presented the broken appearance, which is manifested when a stiff paper, having been once folded and pressed with a folder, is refolded in a reverse direction, in the same creases or edges which had formed the original fold. This discovery was sufficient. It was clear to me that the letter had been turned, as a glove, inside out, redirected and resealed. I bade the minister good morning, and took my departure at once, leaving a gold snuff box upon the table. The next morning, I called for the snuff box, when we resumed, quite eagerly, the conversation of the preceding day. While thus engaged, however, a loud report, as if of a pistol, was heard immediately beneath the windows of the hotel, and was succeeded by a series of fearful screams and the shoutings of a terrified mob. They rushed to a casement, threw it open, and looked out. In the meantime, I stepped to the card rack, took the letter, put it in my pocket, and replaced it by a facsimile, so far as regards externals, which I had carefully prepared in my lodgings, imitating the D cipher very readily by means of a seal formed of bread. You made a bread seal? <laughs> That's amazing. Probably shouldn't eat that bread anymore, though, so... Yeah. The disturbance in the street had been occasioned by the frantic behavior of a man with a musket. He had fired it among a crowd of women and children. It proved, however, to have been without ball, and the fellow was suffered to go his way as a lunatic or a drunkard. When he had gone, D came from the window, whither I had followed him immediately upon securing the object in view. Soon afterwards I bade him farewell. The pretended lunatic was a man in my own pay. Where can you hire somebody like that? Like, uh, just call someone up. Hey, uh, I need you to act like you're drunk and shoot a gun that doesn't have a bullet in it. Can you do that, please? Sure! <laughs> like, what's the kind of salary if you want to pretend to be drunk for, like, five minutes? <laughs> but what purpose had you, I asked, in replacing the letter by a facsimile? Would it not have been better, at the first visit, to have seized it openly and departed? D, replied Dupont, is a desperate man, and a man of nerve. His hotel, too, was not without attendance devoted to his interests. Had I made the wild attempt you suggest, I might never have left the ministerial presence alive. The good people of Paris might have heard of me no more. But I had an object apart from those considerations. You know my political prepossessions. In this matter, I act as a partisan of the lady concerned. For eighteen months, the minister has had her in his power. She has now him in hers. Since, being unaware that the letter is not in his possession, he will proceed with his exactions as if it was. Thus will he inevitably commit himself at once to his political destruction. His downfall, too, will not be more precipitate than awkward. It is all very well to talk about the Facilis Decinus Averni, but in all kinds of climbing, as a Catalani said of seeing, it is far more easy to get up than to come down. In the present instance I have no sympathy, at least no pity, for him who descends. He is that monstrum horrendum, an unprincipled man of genius. I confess, however, that I should like very well to know the precise character of his thoughts, when, being defied by her whom the prefect terms a certain personage, he is reduced to opening the letter which I left for him in the card rack. How? Did you put anything particular in it? Why, it did not seem altogether right to leave the interior blank. That would have been insulting. D at Vienna once did me an evil turn, which I told him quite good-humouredly, that I should remember. So, as I knew he would feel some curiosity in regard to the identity of the person who had outwitted him, I thought it a pity not to give him a clue. He is well acquainted with my miss, and I just copied the middle of the blank sheet the words, it's in French, so I'm gonna Google translate it again, I'm sorry. 
a design so fatal, if it is not worthy of art, is worthy of Thyestes. They are to be found in Cribbalon's art tree. That's the end. <laughs> I did tell you it would be a really short episode this week because there was just a little bit of the book to finish up. And yeah, I didn't want to have a super long episode last week. So that was Edgar Allan Poe's The Purloined Letter. That was actually amazing. <laughs> I'm not much of like a high literature reader, you know? I haven't actually read very much Edgar Allan Poe. I've read The Oblong Box on this podcast, but other than that, I haven't really read any at all. Um, that was really cool. And yes, I know um, the main detective is an actual French nobleman, so he should have a French accent, but uh, <laughs> I didn't want to offend the entire country of France, so I figured um, something more like a British accent would work better. Probably because that's the only accent that I can actually do. Uh, yeah, forgive me. So basically what happened is that, like, Dupont realized how smart the minister was, and therefore exposed him. Like, what he, like, inferred what the minister would do by knowing him really well. Like, they're old friends, apparently. So he knew him well, uh, and he <laughs> he visited his house and was wearing, like, something like sunglasses. And when he was having a conversation with the minister, he was actually looking around the house and, like, kind of looking around for the letter. Which I still think is really funny. <laughs> Just imagine, like, somebody visiting your house with sunglasses on and then staring at you with their sunglasses um, while actually, like, just looking around everywhere in the house. I don't know. It, <laughs> just, I, I have this image in my head and it's cracking up. <laughs> but anyway, um, so that's how he found it in plain sight. So it turns out that the letter was in plain sight all along. So, yeah. In your face, prefect. <laughs> it was right there. You could see it. <laughs> oh man, dude, that's gotta be really disappointing for poor guy. <laughs> he was looking for like hours and hours every single day for probably months and he didn't find it and it turns out it was all just sitting on that shelf the entire time. Like, imagine that. <laughs> it's like when you lose your glasses or something and you're looking around the house everywhere for them and it turns out they're on your head or something like that all along. <laughs> It's like, the, it's just such a letdown. Yeah, anyway, so that was really clever. And even though the parts where he was tr kind of explaining his thought process were very long, it was also very interesting. And, you know, I think I understood it decently well, so that was pretty cool. Um, so yeah, if you have any book recommendations, you can either let me know on Instagram or email me at classicmysteriespod at gmail.com. I always have two links in the show notes, one for just donating directly to me and one for becoming my patron. So if you ever feel like donating, you can use those. And I would appreciate it if you guys, like, did whatever you can in your podcast app, like liking or reviewing or commenting or whatever, so that more people can hear these cool stories and join the community, which is arguably very small, but <laughs> still. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I had a great week and I hope you guys do too. See you next Monday. Bye.